0: Well, I'll get you started on this because it may take you a minute, but turn to the book of Micah. I won't be looking to see how fast you find it. <laughs> Micah chapter 1, it's right in the middle of the Minor Prophets, about six houses to the right of the book of Daniel. And while you're turning to Micah 1 and trying to hide the fact that you're looking at your table of contents right now, but that's okay, let me read you from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, our main verse for this morning. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, as you know, for our Christmas series this year, um, we're focusing on what we're calling Songs of Emmanuel, and this is a series based on some of our most beloved Christmas hymns, but really on the scriptures which inspired the hymns. And our hymn today, O Little Town of Bethlehem, this is a hymn that pictures the birthplace of Christ. It's, the, musically, it's set to a, a soft, nice, pleasant tune, but it speaks of Bethlehem, which is just south of Jerusalem, about five miles, not very far, and it, it paints a picture of peace, And tranquility surrounding the birth of our Savior. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And so in this hymn, the birthplace of Christ is rightly pictured as a a peaceful place a moment in time where everything changed because God had come to earth as a baby. And this birthplace, which is prophesied in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, is confirmed in Matthew chapter 2 that Jesus was in fact born in Bethlehem. But the peace and the tranquility that is Micah 5 verse 2 itself is surrounded by a much bigger vision of of how God will bring peace to the earth, how the Messiah King will play a role in that bringing of peace. And so what I'd like to do to get us to that verse is I want to pretend that we're parachuting out of a plane and we're descending slowly to the ground and and you're you're looking down and you can see all of the countryside before you. So I want to take a little time to orient you to the actual prophecy in chapter 5 verse 2. So we're going to float down slowly and get a bigger picture and then we'll land and consider the actual prophecy itself. So we start in Micah chapter 1 verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. This is one of the clearest historical introductions to any book of the Bible. It tells you when it's happening, who's reigning, where they are geographically, and what's going on historically. What this means is that Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. He was a little bit younger. And like Isaiah, he was ministering in the southern kingdom of Judah. He prophesied, uh, Micah did, just before and after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. And So they're right around the same time, Micah just a little younger than Isaiah. Now Micah, being from the small village of Moresheth, he would be sensitive and he would sympathize with the peasant working class who were at this time period being oppressed by the wealthy landowners, by the powerful elite in government, as well as the ignoring the law of God concerning being a vibrant, caring, unified community of faith. And so so Micah would have seen this firsthand. He would have understood what is happening because of the powerful not obeying the law and their graciousness not coming down to those who are less fortunate. In fact, the main message of the book is indicated By Micah 3, verse 8, which was to declare to Israel, meaning in this case, the southern kingdom of Judah, Micah almost always uses Judah to speak of Israel, or rather Israel to speak of Judah, what he's declaring is injustice in society, meaning that they're disregarding the covenant God made with them, they're ignoring the law, they're committing covenant treachery against God. And so Micah calls out against the injustice which is happening to the underprivileged, which... By the way, if the citizenry would just obey the law of Moses, there would never be injustice. Everyone would be cared for with compassion if the wealthy and the leadership weren't so corrupt. Now, by the way, uh, the Bible never calls to the government to take money from the wealthy and redistribute it to the less wealthy. That is never the call in government. The The call of God in the law is for those who have much to help those who have little and to do so out of love for God. That's the call. And so Micah gives great detail. He cries out against, first of all, the the powerful devising uh, ways to take fields, to take houses, to take inheritances, to take jobs away from those who were less fortunate. Chapter 2 speaks of that. Micah cries out in chapter 3 against the rulers of Israel, looking the other way, so that they could become rich, he calls the many rulers of Israel in chapter three, verse two, quote, "You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones." and Micah also cries out against the corrupt legal system. it was self protecting you had judges taking bribes, you had priests getting rich, you had false prophets giving prophecies for money. Chapter Three speaks of this. And all of these in leadership, all of the powerful, all of the elite, they're all saying, Micah chapter 3, verse 11, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster will come upon us. Arrogant, prideful, foolish. So now as we float on our parachute down just a little farther, we can see that Micah is basically divided into three sections, three topics. And I think that will help you understand the one verse we're really going to spend most of our time on, The first section, chapters 1 and 2, we could call Judah's punishment and future restoration. This is Judah's punishment and future restoration. Micah's first oracle in chapter 1, verses 2 through 7, gives us the image of a courtroom. And in this courtroom now is announced uh, the Lord's heavenly temple and the Lord's intentions. Micah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathers them and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return pretty scathing judgment here he's basically saying my people have become utterly corrupt they're no better than anybody else on earth micah speaks of samaria the capital city of the northern kingdom of israel that is under the condemnation of god and very shortly the empire of assyria would come and crush the northern kingdom And then a warning is issued in verse 5 to the southern kingdom of Judah, basically saying here's what's about to happen to the northern kingdom and you're not far behind. Then in verses 8 through 16, Micah laments the coming judgment on Judah. I mean, this is is his home. These are his people. And he begins naming towns and cities which are in God's crosshairs. And notably, the fortress city of Lachish is mentioned in verse 13. That will become very important when we get to chapter 5. Then in chapter 2, we have two speeches of doom. The first concerns the heart evil, the the wickedness of the oppressors in Judah. Chapter 2, verse 1, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. The wealthy never have enough. They are deciding to get wealthier by taking from others. And then the second speech in chapter 2 concerns the fact that the nation is ignoring the warnings of the preachers. Ignoring the warnings of the prophets. Chapter 2 verse 6. Do not preach thus they preach. In other words those who are saying don't preach are actually preaching. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Or, to put it in a context that you might understand today, a preacher who says, you should always just say things that make everyone feel good, not what they need to hear from the Word of God. Verse 7, Micah challenges this. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my works do good to him who walk uprightly? In other words, the Lord isn't the one doing this evil. You are. If you're right before God, you have nothing to fear. And so now the nation is headed toward great discipline. But as always in the Minor Prophets, 100% of the time, God tempers the coming judgment with future restoration. Chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold like flock in a pasture, a noisy multitude of men. So what's this restoration going to look like? Well, that brings us to the second big section of Micah, chapters 3 through 5. We might call this one the coming messianic kingdom, the coming kingdom of Messiah. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, God condemns the most powerful in Judah as being corrupt, so trouble is coming. It is on its way, and... Ultimately, that will happen by the hands of the Babylonians in a little over a century. And listen to what God is going to do to Israel's elite then. Chapter 3, verse 4. They, then they will cry to the Lord, but He will not answer them. He will hide His face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. And then in verses 5 through 7. Micah condemns all the false prophets who are telling people what they want to hear, rather than truly warning people of their sin, condemning their sin, calling them to repentance. And he declares that all these prophets who say, all is well, all these prophets who are saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and doesn't care about your sin, they're going to be decimated in judgment Chapter 3, verse 6 Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. And then Micah, in a moment of personal sharing, declares that he's being faithful. He is a faithful preacher. He is a faithful prophet. Verse 8: But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah wasn't worried about the offering being taken after his sermon. He was simply declaring, You need to repent or you're going to die. And he was faithful. And so Micah ends this section declaring that Jerusalem, Zion, verse 12, shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And that's exactly what happened in 586 B.C., a little over a century after this was written, when Nebuchadnezzar invades for the third time. And that time, he completely destroyed Jerusalem. But as always, Israel was to have hope. And all of a sudden, we're transported to a future day a day which hasn't happened yet, even from our perspective. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Jerusalem is going to be the center of the world. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In contrast to the total destruction of Jerusalem in chapter three, now Zion, Jerusalem is the spiritual capital of the world, the spiritual capital of all the nations. And you know this, by the way, that the Lord is now physically and permanently and personally present in Jerusalem. He is teaching the peoples. Verse 3 says he'll bring peace to the earth, no more war. He'll decide all the disputes among the nations. Meaning, by the way, Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be reigning on earth in a time when there are still sinners. Meaning there's an intermediate kingdom between now and the final state. After all, sin has been finally judged. The New Testament identifies that time period as a thousand years, a millennial reign of Christ. And this will be a time of great economic prosperity, a time of joy. Verse 4, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Unlike today, Israel won't be in a constant state of readiness to go to battle to defend their very right to exist. And then in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, those the Lord afflicted will be drawn back together, meaning the true believers of all the ages who suffered because their countrymen were unfaithful. In fact, verse 7 says that they will be the new Israel. Chapter 4, verse 7, And the lame, I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Verses 9 and 10, Yes, they are going to Babylon. Yes, they will be judged. But the end of verse 10 says, There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And yes, when they came back, it was small. Only a total in the the return from exile. Only a total of maybe 50,000 Jews came back around 534 BC or so. But God has already tipped his hand that's not the real excitement that small return from exile isn't the real joy the real excitement is about the future kingdom the the messiah ruling on earth physically present verses 11 through 13 encourage the jews that while at the moment many nations are assembled against you i.e 2019 right now nevertheless Verse 12, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. And how is God going to bring about this plan? It will be through his Messiah King, the King who is to come. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, tells us of the, the dilemma, the plight, the danger that Judah is in because of her sin. But her hope that a king will be born in Bethlehem is what now sustains her. And he'll deliver her from all her enemies. And now Israel will be like refreshing water to the whole world under the rule of Messiah. Chapter 5, verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And no more. Will Israel be pushed around? No more will there be entire groups in nations all over the world calling for the dissolution and the the destruction of Israel. No more. Chapter 5, verse 8. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nation in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces and there is none to deliver, In other words, who will be the superpower in the millennial kingdom? It will be Israel. And Messiah King will triumph. Verse 9, your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. So after Judah's punishment and future restoration in chapters 1 and 2 and after the presentation of the, the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of Messiah, In chapters 3, 4, and 5, we get one more section, chapters 6 and 7. God then returns to his indictment, his indictment against Israel, and he makes promises to them as well. So this is God's indictment and promises. In earlier indictments, it was the leaders of Israel, the elite, the wealthy, those in government that were under God's conviction, but now he addresses the citizenry. Now he addresses the people. They as well are accountable to God, And once again, we enter the courtroom. Chapter 6, verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. God calls as his first witness the people themselves. Verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. But now they've rejected him. The very God who rescued them, the people have fallen now into a hollow religiosity which doesn't live itself out in holiness, certainly doesn't live itself out in love, certainly doesn't live itself out in a society that's honoring to the Lord, which would be happening in the case of true, genuine, repentant, saving faith. And he condemns these people because they think they're accepted by God because they keep doing religious stuff. They keep offering their sacrifices. They keep the festivals. They keep going to the holy days. But he reminds them of what he said about true faith. Chapter 6, verse 10 this is true faith. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And so, in verses 9 through 16, judgment is issued summarized in verse 13 therefore i strike you with a grievous blow making you desolate because of your sins now in chapter 7 remember micah lives here this is his home these are his people and so he prays a prayer of lament and sorrow in chapter 7 verses 1 through 7 woe is me For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. In other words, can I find a group of people who want to follow the Lord in this nation? I can't find them. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Prayer of lament and sorrow. Very similar to some of the prayers of lament in the Psalms. But like many of the Psalms, he concludes with hope. Chapter 7, verse 7, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And now, the rest of the book ends on a fortissimo. It ends on a a high point of Micah's confidence in the Lord. Chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, Israel's enemies will someday be crushed and God will be vindicated through his people. Verses 11 through 13, Jerusalem will be rebuilt and now the the boundaries of Israel will be far extended. Listen, Israel of today is not the Israel of the Bible. Israel of today, you can stand on the west side and throw a rock to the east side. Not according to Micah. Boundaries will be extended. How far? Ezekiel 47 and 48 gives the specifics of the boundaries of the millennial kingdom of Israel. And we would find that it swallows countries like Syria and Jordan, a good portion of Lebanon, a little chunk of Egypt. It's a lot bigger. In verses 14 through 17, the nations will fear Messiah. Verse 17, they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds they shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. And so Micah ends now on this high note of praise, this high note of glory of God, the kindness of God, the grace of God. And he tells what God does with the sins of those who would repent. Verse 18 Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? And passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Forgiveness is total. It's comprehensive. It's forever Just like in Christ, our sins are cast into the depths of the sea. But now as we're parachuting down toward Micah 5, verse 2, we've seen the whole book. Our eyes are now fixed on the particular situation in Micah 5. The situation which leads Micah to issue the oracle of the hope of the coming Messiah. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Jerusalem, the daughter or the city of troops, is called to arms. The city is under siege. Now all the soldiers are called to take up their arms. Now there's only two choices about what situation Micah is speaking of here. The first choice is the coming siege of Jerusalem by Babylon in 586, which is still over a century away. Or the second choice is the situation which Micah personally saw. He witnessed it and references it directly later on in verse 5. And that is the siege of Assyria's army, King Sennacherib, coming against Jerusalem. So here's our situation. The year is 701 B.C. This event is important enough in Scripture that not only is it referenced here, it's recorded in detail in Isaiah 36 and 37, recorded in detail in 2 Kings 18 and 19, and recorded in detail in 2 Chronicles 32. Assyria's King Sennacherib reached the Palestine area trying to suppress a general rebellion in the area. And like Micah 5, verse 1, Isaiah referred three times in Isaiah chapter 10. He refers to Assyria as the rod to strike Judah. And here in Micah 1, with a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, as the Assyrians swept down from the north, they took city after city, that either by force or by surrender, Assyria had already, if you recall, destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel 21 years earlier. So that territory is taken. It's already theirs. The last stronghold, the last defense between Jerusalem and Assyria was the city of Lachish, about 29 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Now remember that Lachish was listed in those cities for coming judgment in Micah one thirteen. Lachish is one of the, the greatest archaeological finds of all time because unbelieving archaeologists figured out that King Sennacherib brought somewhere in the vicinity of 185,000 troops and destroyed the city of Lachish. There there are huge amounts of evidence for this. In fact, archaeologists found a mass grave where Assyrians slaughtered 1,500 Jews in the city of Lachish and buried them all together. And so now... Sennacherib has taken 46 cities in the area. He's deported many of the citizens to Assyria and there's nothing left between Sennacherib and Jerusalem. While Sennacherib was at Lachish conquering and killing, King Hezekiah of Judah sent from Jerusalem, he sent political envoys. He apologized to Sennacherib. He said, I'm sorry for my rebellion. I'm sorry I have not given you what you demanded and he sent the treasures of Jerusalem, everything he could find, every nickel he could dig up, he sent in tribute. Now in the meantime, King Hezekiah had been preparing for the expected attack. He was digging the now famous Hezekiah's tunnel to bring water from the outside and minimize the water the invading army might be able to get. But what did Sennacherib do? Hezekiah sent him everything I have. I'm sorry that that I rebelled and and here's all of our money, here's all of our treasure. Sennacherib basically said, great, I'll take it, but I'm still going to come and destroy Jerusalem and I'm going to kill you. And Sennacherib would be satisfied with nothing less than the death of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was now completely cut off, totally isolated. Sennacherib decided to send his army of almost 200,000 men to Jerusalem anyway, even though, even though Hezekiah was begging for mercy. And as the king's spokesman, Sennacherib sent the Rabshakeh, as listed in Isaiah. The field commander is what Rabshakeh means. And so the Rabshakeh, the, the field commander, stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. This is just outside the wall of Jerusalem to meet Hezekiah's representatives. And we see this recorded in Isaiah 36. And here the field commander made two speeches in front of these officials and these soldiers. Remember, they're, they're, they're called to arms as we see in verse one here. They're called to arms and these soldiers are on the wall and they can see this and they can can hear it. They can hear these two speeches which are meant to humiliate Hezekiah, to intimidate Jerusalem into total surrender. In fact, they're intended to be a slap in the face of Hezekiah. Just like verse 1 says, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Here's what he says. Isaiah 36, beginning in verse 13, then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. He was speaking Hebrew to them. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria, Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. And here's his logic. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Or to put it this way, just in Palestine alone, Sennacherib is 46 and O. You think you're going to be the first one to be delivered? And did you catch what Rabshakeh is doing? He's not only threatening the people, but in the language of the Jews, he's saying, come out and surrender and your life will be great. It'll be fine, which of course would be a lie. Now, here's what's interesting. And I give you all this information to understand the difference between what Isaiah did and what Micah is doing. The account of the situation by Isaiah that I just read to you focuses on the immediate situation, the the genuine desperate plight of Hezekiah. And though Judah as as a nation was corrupt, Hezekiah was a good king. He was a faithful king who did his best to follow the Lord. And he was asking for the Lord's help. He was humbling himself before the Lord. That's Isaiah's focus. Micah skips all of that. Micah's focus goes far beyond the immediate situation and looks to the ultimate salvation, the ultimate solution for Israel and for the whole world, and that is the coming of Messiah. And so he skips all of that and goes right to verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, this passage deals with elements both of Jesus' first coming and second coming. And now, as we've parachuted down into verse 2, we can finally land and see the specific details of this coming king of Israel. Okay, we're on the ground, you folded up your chute, and you're looking around. We want to give some specific details. Here's the first key detail about the king of Israel. We'll call this one the king's place. The king's place. The place of his birth. The place of his human origin. Micah gives a contrast to the seemingly hopeless situation of the armies of Sennacherib surrounding Jerusalem. There's this connecting word here to show a contrast. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratha. And now Micah treats Bethlehem as if he is a person. He personifies the city Bethlehem is presented in Scripture as a paradox. It's a very paradoxical city. Compared to Jerusalem, it's humble, it's nondescript, there's nothing special about it, and yet it's from the little town of Bethlehem that quite literally the age of Messiah is launched. Bethlehem of Judah is both exalted and it's scarred in the history of Israel. Jacob, the son of Isaac, son of Abraham, had one true love in his life, his beloved Rachel. Rachel was taken from him early as she gave birth to their second son. And so Jacob buried young Rachel where? In Bethlehem. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied of a coming time of great grief and great agony and pain for Bethlehem, picturing Rachel grieving her own children. Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen Thus says the Lord of voices heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And of course, this prophecy is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2 when King Herod, in his desperate search to murder the baby Jesus, murdered all the baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding region 2 and under. Bethlehem is scarred. During the time of the judges, after the conquest of Canaan, before the era of all the kings would begin, Israel descended repeatedly into immorality and and covenant treachery and debauchery and idolatry. And Bethlehem was not spared. In fact, Bethlehem is the scene of one of the most gruesome incidents in all of Scripture. Judges 19 records this terrible incident in Bethlehem in which a man's concubine is brutalized by men from the tribe of Benjamin. She's so badly injured that she died And this incident ultimately started a civil war between the tribe of Benjamin and the rest of Israel resulting in the deaths of about 85,000 men. All because of immorality rampant where? In Bethlehem. But here's the paradox. Literally at the same time, during the same time period, during the time of the judges, the city of paradoxes is the scene of one of the most beautiful stories in all of the Bible. A picture of redemption as illustrated by Bethlehem. It is in Bethlehem that the young Moabite widow in desperate straits, Ruth, she comes and is graciously taken in by a faithful, God-fearing, law-keeping man named Boaz. Their family is blessed and acts as as a beacon of hope and light as to what Israel could be like if she would obey the Lord. And in fact, Boaz and Ruth will be the great-grandparents of the one who will set Israel on the straight course of the Lord's blessing. That is King David. And so, because Boaz made his family home in Bethlehem, as did his son Obed, as did his grandson Jesse, and Jesse's youngest son David, Bethlehem then would take on the nickname, still called today, by the way, the city of what? David. And it would be to David of Bethlehem that God would give his covenant that a ruler from the line of David would be on the throne of Israel forever. And so Bethlehem isn't chosen at random to be the place of the king. Bethlehem stands as a picture of redemption and also the scene of redemption. It was the birthplace of David and to make clear who David's heir to the throne is, Bethlehem would be the birthplace of what Jesus is often nicknamed the son of David. I think it's marvelous that we have a God who so perfectly orchestrates the events of history in his redemptive plan that he leaves no doubt whatsoever as to his sovereignty over all things. Is there any doubt as to his sovereignty? I mean, God orchestrated the birth of David By bringing a no-account Moabite woman who in God's providence is taken in and has her life restored and restarted in the house of Boaz. And 700 years before the fact, God tells us through Micah that the son of David, the savior of the world, will be born in Bethlehem. And it happens. How? Well, just before Jesus is born, Luke chapter 2 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered so that Joseph and Mary then had to get going to Joseph's ancestral home, Bethlehem. By the way, Caesar Augustus had never before issued a census and he just happened to decide to do this. Listen, if we see from Scripture that God is totally and completely sovereign over the birth of Christ, is it not ridiculous to try to remove God's sovereignty by saying that, salvation in christ is purely a human choice that's ludicrous that all of a sudden when it came to you god was hands off and he is just kind of hopeful that you might choose him no you didn't choose god god chose you just as certainly as god passed over david's brothers to choose him as king god ephesians 1 4 chose us in him before the foundation of the world And by the way, it is that choice which fuels our worship for all eternity. That God is sovereign. So that someday, as we walk the streets of Jerusalem, as we marvel at the wonders of the new heaven and the new earth, as we fellowship with the angels, as we fellowship with one another for all eternity, as the nations of new earth bring their tribute and their love and their worship and their honor to God enthroned in new Jerusalem, it will always be because God chose us. And we will forever give him thanks. God chose the birthplace of David. God chose the birthplace of Christ. And God chose the time and the place of your spiritual birth. Why? Because he is sovereign. The king's place was Bethlehem. Your place is wherever you were when God snatched you from the fires of hell. There's a second specific detail. We'll call this one the king's progress. The king's progress. Micah doesn't just address Bethlehem, but as it were, uses Bethlehem's whole name. That's never a random occurrence. It is not just Bethlehem, it is Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah is the district in, Jerusalem, in Judah rather, where Bethlehem is located, and it means fruitful. Fruitful. It's, there's a rich semantic flavor to this word related to the coming of Messiah. Follow my logic here. In the account of David and Goliath, First Samuel seventeen twelve. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite, from Ephrathah, of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons in the days of Saul. The man was over the old and advanced in years. Isaiah then prophesies a Messiah in Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot, a, a, a little branch from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Fruitful, Ephrathah, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so the Lord Jesus at first is pictured as just a shoot. If you've ever lived out in the country and you cut down a tree, what's the thing that that plagues you is the little shoots. The tree keeps trying to grow back. And how, how strong are those shoots? You just go out with these little clippers and you just go snip and that's it. So Jesus is pictured first as as this little offshoot from the ancient family. He starts in a humble state as a shoot, as a baby. And now Micah characterizes Bethlehem. He says, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Well, thank you very much. You know, if you're from Bethlehem, that's not exactly a ringing endorsement. In other words, in fact, a, a wooden literal translation of the Hebrew says you are... Too insignificant with regard to your existence. Like, we wouldn't even know this if you were gone. You recall from 1 Samuel 16 that the prophet Samuel was sent by God to choose the true king of Israel. After God rejected King Saul and God sent Samuel to the family of Jesse and Jesse presented to Samuel seven boys. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, no, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And that, of course, is David. The eighth son of Jesse was so insignificant that in the ancient Near Eastern way of thinking, they didn't even bother counting him. I've got all my kids here and that one. What is that like? Too little to be even counted. And yet God would choose David. And here's what God would promise David. Second Samuel 7, famously called the Davidic covenant. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And now, Jesus comes to begin to fulfill that promise of God. In fact, Matthew's gospel gives a little update to Micah 5, verse 2. Breaking news, as it were, of a reversal of fortunes, a turning tide, a new era for Bethlehem. Micah 5, verse 2 says that Bethlehem is too little among the clans of Judah. Matthew's gospel gives an update in proclaiming the birthplace of Christ, Matthew very loosely cites Micah 5 verse 2 and he updates the new situation. Listen carefully. You can hear the difference. Matthew 2 verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Micah 5 verse 2 was written, it was true that Bethlehem was a no-account town. But that's changed now. Now it is the place God came to earth. Matthew was originally written to a Jewish audience. They would have known the wording of the original text in Micah chapter 5. They would have recognized that Matthew's addition was not a mistake in quoting scripture, but an interpretive explanation. The little shoot of the stump of Jesse would grow in greatness. And we see this explained in the next specific detail about the king. We'll call this one the king's priority. The king's priority. The next phrase in verse 2 says, From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. This is a key theological concept here. That the coming of Christ was first and foremost for God the Father. We, in fact, could survey the history of King Jesus in about one minute. And we'll see that he came for God the Father. Here's the history of King Jesus. The world falls into sin. Genesis 3 says God will send a Savior. The Savior will be God in the flesh. Job chapter 19. The Savior will be born in Bethlehem. Our text here. The Savior will die for the sins of all who have placed their faith in him. Isaiah 53. The Savior will be raised and ascend into heaven as the Holy Spirit then gathers kingdom citizens during the time of Israel's continued rebellion. That's right now. That is the church age. The Savior King will return. He'll redeem Israel. He'll gather his peoples from all nations together. Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14. The Savior will reign during the time when Satan is bound Satan will be loosed. One last rebellion will take place. This will be quickly put down by Christ. All evil, all wickedness, all rebellion will be dealt with from every age. Creation will be purified, made ready for the final state in which all the saved of all the ages will be gathered together on new earth. And here is the priority of Christ all of that time. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then comes the end when He, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. It was all for Him. In fact, Philippians 2 says that God the Father has given God the Son the name which is above every name so that God the Son may now deliver a completed, purified kingdom to the Father. That's why Micah 5, 2 God says that from Bethlehem would come a ruler for me. It's for his glory. And the seat of Messiah's government during the time of his reign on earth will be Israel. He is one who is to be ruler in Israel. There's a fourth specific detail about the king. We'll call this one the king's power. The king's power. I would love to add one little section to O oh, Little Town of Bethlehem. How Still we see thee lie, and from her will come the king that will crush everybody. It doesn't rhyme, but it sure makes theological sense. Here's the king's power. Verse 3, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Now, as I mentioned before, verses 2 and 3 put together the two advents of Christ. The first and the second coming. They're, They're compressed. This is familiar to us. Isaiah 9 verse 6 for to us a child is born to us a son is given first coming and the government shall be on his shoulder second coming Isaiah 61 1 and 2 the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor it stops in the middle of of Isaiah 61, verse 2, Jesus read that text publicly in Nazareth and said, I have fulfilled this right now. First coming. He stopped there. He didn't finish the verse. The verse finishes, and the day of vengeance of our God. Second coming. So verses 2 and 3 here compress the first and second comings of Christ as prophecy often does. Verse 3 says that Jesus will give them up We're in that age now. Jesus turned away from Israel as a nation when they crucified Him, but only for a time. It would be until she who is in labor has given birth, meaning the consummation of God's redemptive plan for Israel. Zechariah 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on Me, on Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him. And then he says, Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. All the Jews who would have saving faith in genuine internal reality of faith in God, they will return. Interestingly, the same Hebrew word often used to speak of repentance, of conversion. For example, Hosea 3 verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return. Same word. And seek the Lord their God and David their king. Here's the repentance. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. And the power of the king will turn His own people back to Him. Verse 4, He shall stand and shepherd His flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord His God. And they shall dwell secure, for He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and He shall be their peace Christ will come again. He's not coming as a baby the second time. He's coming in the strength of the glory of God. Did you notice the the David-like imagery here? David was the shepherd who became king, and king, Jesus is the king who becomes the great shepherd. But he's no simple or nondescript shepherd. He will rule in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of God. Israel will be secure because Christ will be great to the ends of the earth, a theocracy of the greatest magnitude, a divine monarchy with Christ on the throne of Israel, the seat of power of all the earth. And then verse 5, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. Now what's happening here? Micah is using a figure of speech called a synecdoche. And it's where part of something is representing the whole, the whole thing. So when the original reader would be familiar with Assyria, Assyria now also becomes a representative of Messiah's triumph over all the nations who would come against him. By the way, this is recorded in Revelation 16 at the end of the Great Tribulation when the return of Christ is imminent and the nations know demonic spirits are are fooling the kings of the earth for they, this is Revelation 16 beginning in verse 14, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the God the Almighty and they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Zechariah 14 records that short battle. We see that the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle, and what will happen. Zechariah fourteen twelve, this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet, their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. O little town of Bethlehem. He's come a long way. Zechariah fourteen nine, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. By the way, Micah says here that God will raise up seven shepherds and eight princes of men. This is another synecdoche. This is another small piece to represent the big piece. Zechariah 14.5 says that when Christ returns, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Who are the holy ones? Revelation 19 confirms it. It's you and it's me. The holy ones of God formerly resurrected, waiting for the return of Christ. The angels of God, the resurrected saints of God, coming to follow their commander and their king. Great power, great power. That's the king's place, his progress, his priority, his power. One more detail about the coming king. We'll call this one the king's permanence. The king's permanence. And we get now to a a theological bombshell. Jesus Christ is the one, verse 2, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah speaks of the coming forth. Now, at first glance, this is a reference to the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and appropriately so. But this is a plural verb. His coming forth, more literally, is his goings out multiple times. When has the second member of the Trinity gone out, so to speak? Well, there's certainly the creation. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. There are the numerous physical manifestations of God on earth, often referred to as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, the person of Jesus Christ, prior to his birth, appeared to Samson, to Hagar, to Samson's parents, to Gideon, to Elijah. And, yes, speaking of Hezekiah, speaking of 701 BC, speaking of Sennacherib's Assyrian army of 185,000 who were besieging Jerusalem, there is, of course, as we referenced a couple of weeks ago, Isaiah 37, 36. And the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early the next morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. You see, Jesus coming to earth as a baby is not his first time in this story. He's been around the whole time, but now he becomes permanently as a human being who is fully God. By the way, Not only is he called the the shoot of Jesse, coming from Jesse in his humanity, Isaiah 11.10 calls him the root of Jesse, the one who made Jesse, the one who made all humanity. So what does this tell us about Christ and about his permanence? The Son of God has always been. He is eternal. He has always existed. He is the one who is from ancient days, from eternity past. Listen carefully to this comparison. God proclaims of himself in Revelation 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. Jesus proclaims in Revelation twenty two thirteen, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Can I put it to you this way? Jesus is permanent. He will rule the world. And there is only one question left to answer. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, Whoever is not with me is against me. So the one question left to answer is, Whose side will you be on? You have two choices. Assyria or Messiah. Those are your options. Bethlehem today, still a paradox. The church of the nativity, built on the supposed spot of Jesus' birth, is a disgusting Catholic shrine hijacking the gospel of Jesus Christ into a mystical, works-based, dark religion of desperation. Bethlehem itself is a hotbed of conflict between Palestinians and Jews. But someday, Christ will return and securing his reign on earth, I suspect that he will have special plans to honor Bethlehem, Ephrathah, which is by no means least among the rulers of Judah. I hope that you are not on the side of the Assyrians, but on the side of Messiah. That is my prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this word, which on the surface highlights the the tenderness and the quietness and the joy and the, the peace surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. But we see very quickly that our Savior grows up to live a perfect life. He grows up to die on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of all who would believe on him to satisfy your wrath to be the propitiation for our sin the satisfaction of your fury against our sin to be raised from the dead as a guarantee that the price has been fully paid and proof of his deity and to pave the way for all of us too who will die to be raised in Christ as well and who then ascended into heaven and even now is seated at your right hand, keeping us safe in him, interceding for us, advocating for us continually until that day we arrive home. And then we get to come back to a new earth in which Messiah reigns. And perhaps then it will no longer be O little town of Bethlehem, but O grand city of Bethlehem. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman here who has not bent the knee to Jesus Christ, who has not bowed in worship and in repentance. Might this be the day that as the wind blows, the Spirit of God would move and save the lost. We pray for Christ's sake and for his glory alone. Amen.